Um, I'll probably have to cut it short Sunday morning too, but that's, I, I will not make you no promises there. But um, So Joshua chapter 6. Um, I, I, I love that uh, when I put VeggieTales up on the screen, how excited y'all get. That, that, I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, I see it as a good thing. Um, Danny wants me to stop talking and just play the movie, uh, the kids show. Um, the silly songs and everything, you know. It could be the hairbrush song on there, I don't know. Um, but this this is one of the better of of the uh, of the VeggieTales. One of their first ones, I believe. Uh, it's excellent. They throw the Slurpees or whatever it is off the wall. It's just so good. The French peas are just, they always shine on screen. Uh, I don't know who they're acting coaches, but man, they just really nail it every time. Uh, only thing it's missing is the pirates who don't do anything. Well, uh, since we're, we're doing the story of Jericho, you, uh, you're supposed to read chapter 4 and chapter 6, but for the sake of time, we'll do chapter 6. You'll be done with Joshua Friday. We'll go through chapter 8, so we'll look at the sin of Achan and Ai and all that uh, tomorrow on fr- Friday, and then we're going to skip the Judges uh, and do a lot of skipping through Judges. Um, so the plan is next Wednesday we'll be looking at the story of Samson. So either we'll look at two chapters or the whole story. I don't know. Um, but we are moving faster, uh, and, and it'll pick up. So uh, years ago, uh, my son, uh, you know, he, he had the little army men and blocks and everything else. He played with a lot of those. He was just a little toddler. And he, uh, he did his own version of... Josh and the big wall, to quote VeggieTales. And here it is, right? You can see there's, there's Jericho, right? His army guys, right? Because, you know, it's Israel's army. This is pretty brilliant. And uh, here they are. They're, they're going to march around. And you see the Jerichoites, you know, they're, they're not going to take this lying down. And they're going to fight back. And, of course, you know how the story ends, spoiler alert, is the walls come tumbling down. Here, they, here it is. Right, so you can see there's the Israelites. You know they're doing just fine. Well, most of them. <laughs> I mean, some of them were too close to the walls, but they came crashing down. That, of course, is was his favorite part. A lot of didn't build anything he couldn't destroy. Um, and uh, so I thought of that this week. Um, he, he, uh, we would play uh, Joshua in, in the big wall. And I have no doubt it was after we watched the Veggie Tales uh, movie. So I think what we'll do is we'll take this in in in, in pieces. So let's start with. Uh, the charge, I didn't know it was going to be animated, verses 1 and 7, uh, Joshua 6, 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a loud great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Then the people will go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, by the way, notice that Joshua is the only person in the Bible who didn't have a father. His son was, his father was Nun. Uh, that is an old preacher joke. I'm sorry. Uh, but Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of rams, horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. So uh, 
this of course is 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 setting up this is the game plan of how it is that we are going to take um, uh, take Jericho. They have now gone 40 years uh, through the wilderness. Moses has died and was buried. Of course, that's all in Joshua 1. The manna is no longer falling. Maybe you saw that this week. And they are living off of the land, uh, the promised land, land flowing with milk and honey. And now they are ready to take uh, the city of Jericho. And these first cities they take are strategically located, particularly when it comes to the trade and everything else in, uh, in the land of Canaan. So you'll notice there, verse 1, it, 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 it opens up with a doublet. Um, it literally reads in the Hebrew um, that Jericho was shut up inside and shut up outside. Uh, that's why your translation probably reads differently than mine. Mine says shut up inside and outside, so it's more literal. Yours may, may, may say something else. Uh, but the point is to say that Jericho was well fortified, its walls were high, and getting in would, would be virtually impossible. Right? And, and so, so the, the story is wanting you to think of Helm's Deep of, of the Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. So you get in verse 2. <laughs> um, God promised him. Now, what is significant about verse 2? We, for sake of time, not looking at it, that the story of Jericho doesn't begin in chapter 6. It actually begins at the end of chapter 5. Starting in chapter 5, verse 13, you get the commander of the Lord's army. Um, and, and it's likely that the person speaking here is that commander. But, but the narrative has a hard sort of break so that we have one, one main unit. But, but that conversation is still continuing from verse 2. So the Lord said to Joshua through, through this commander, uh, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You need to note the language there. It's past tense. I have given you Jericho, not I will give you Jericho. And this is common throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's a uh, prophetic voice of certainty. Um, I will do this. I guess the closest we have is when athletes guarantee a victory. Uh, but even then, it's, it's a... Or is it, didn't Babe Ruth, when he the one, he, he pointed to the stands, knocked it out, right? Um, and and this, this is what this is. It is God is asking Jer uh, Joshua to trust that the destruction of Jericho is already accomplished. All you need to do is to obey him, obey the Lord, and it will certainly happen. Uh, the means by which it will happen are, are already there. The obedience to see to it that um, it will fall uh, is, is all that, that requires. And you'll get this language all over the prophets. Um, not that God will destroy Babylon, for example, that God has destroyed Babylon, for example. And so verses 3 to 7, you, you get the military strategy. We, we know it well. Um, two parts. For six days, the Israelites will march around Jericho quietly. Right? Um, this, would have included, this would not have included every Jew. Uh, the order is given to us. It's soldiers followed by seven priests, each with a trumpet. The Ark of the Covenant carried by the Levites and finally a rear guard. Um, scholars suggest this formation mirrored Egyptian tactics, which would not have been surprising given that the Israelites came from Egypt and in many ways were as Egyptian as they were Semitic, right? Because they, they were in Egypt for hundreds of years. Um, and uh, the person that established them in Egypt was a, uh, a political figure there. 
Um, but it also, uh, what a lot of people think is happening here is beyond just obeying God, but practically speaking, it's psycho- uh, psychological warfare. Um, I mean, can, can you imagine if, if okay, the, the, the army is out there and they're going to attack any time. And what is it that they're doing? They're just torturing you, right? They're just walking around with, with this little army. You know there's more. They're just walking around. They're not saying anything. They're just walking around. It's kind of creepy when you, when you think about it, right? I mean, think about it. If, if you woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and there was someone standing outside looking into your window, right? They're not saying anything. They're just, it, it's, it's like every creepy movie, isn't it? And then they decided to just walk around your house. Not touching nothing, not saying nothing. And all the while, they're just looking right into your windows, right? I mean, it's, it's creepy. Um, when, when I was growing up, we didn't lock our doors. Um, and, um, and one day, someone did come to the house. Um, my sister was watching my brother and I, and um, uh, we had sort of gotten word uh, it, it had to do with a business situation. And we had gotten where this guy's probably come to the house to, to come get my dad. And uh, it was just the three of us. We were scared to death. And he, uh, so we went and locked all the doors and the windows and all that sort of stuff. Now, we only need to lock one because there was too much stuff in front of the other two. They were fine. And, um, and he started to go around the house looking in all the windows. And I remember I was, I was a little guy. I was younger than my daughter and uh, scared to death. And we would try to find hiding. I don't know why we didn't just find a bed, right? My sister grabbed her. We didn't have cell phones. We had the wall phone, you know. So my sister should have just done that. And then we should have just hid behind our, our doors but every, or our, our, our beds. Uh, but every time he would go into a room, into, to another window, we would try to find another room, right? There's three of us. So one would take this side. The other would take that side. And I got stuck in the middle. I had a little, this was not planned for me to talk about. Um, there was a, we had like a little Ninja Turtle chair, you know, it stood about that high. I remember hiding underneath it, right, right in the middle of, of, of the wall there, uh, scared to death, absolutely scared to death. Um, and so you can see the psychological part of this, you know. Um, and then the, the second plan is that on the seventh day, the procession is to march seven times around Jericho. Um, I saw one estimate that it would take several hours to accomplish this. So it would be quite the feat of endurance. Um, and, of course, the number seven plays a prominent role in the narrative. There are seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days, seven marches around the city on the seventh day. Um, and by my count, this is my count, so this is, I didn't see this in commentary, the number seven is mentioned 14 times in Joshua 6 alone. So uh, that seems significant. Now, that's in, the, in an English Bible. I didn't try that hard to look it up in Hebrew, but uh, uh, it works. And, of course, seven is the number of completion and harks back to creation. What is God doing? God is ushering in a new creation. And in order to do that, he is unfolding a lot of the drama from before. Whereas, each, whereas the Israelites were expelled, now they are returning. And then there's, uh, uh, we, 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 we can't chase this rabbit, but there's a lot of language about giants, right? They have to be expelled, so you have a retelling of, of the Noetic story and, and so on and so forth. You have uh, cities with high walls falling down to get the Tyre Babel story, and on and on and on, until finally you get this <coughs> land flowing milk and honey. You get the new Mount Zion, a, a mountain, um, and, and, and there will be a temple, and so it's, you, you're having a new garden. You, you're getting a, um, 
a garden in the middle of the wilderness. So that's the charge, right? You're, you're going to do these things. And then we get the, the campaign. I did not know those were going to be animated. Verses 8 to 14. Just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he calls the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night at the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did for six days. So now they are doing their marching, and notice that they obey Joshua's command immediately. Uh, unlike what happened in the wilderness, they're not spending their time complaining about it. You know, we need to form a committee, and then we need to disagree with the committee at a public vote. That's not what they're doing. They, they, they trust that Joshua is uh, the Lord's servant, and so, so they obey him. Um, and of course, uh, the, the, the emphasis is on the silence of the procession. I mean, we, we mentioned verse 10, there are three negatives for emphasis. You shall not shout. You shall not make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth. That sounds like a parent to a teenager, right? You know, I've, I, you know, I, I coach the boys all the time and, and I have to repeat myself all the time to them, right? Um, um, boys get, get over by the wall I need you to stand on the other end of the court. I need you to do it now, right? I mean, how many times, how many ways can I put uh, what, the, the simple task you're doing? Uh, I can think of some examples just from yesterday's practice alone. Um, and the only permissible sound is the trumpets blown by the priest. I, can't, I, I do think there's psychological warfare just going on here. It is creepy. It's just, just, just creepy. What's that? Sounds like an siren. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not noon, noon o'clock, right? It's not time for dinner. Um, and they do this, of course, for, for six days. And that leads to the uh, conquest, verses 15 to, to 25. Spend a little bit more time on this. Um, picking up verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, notice 14 times the word seven appears, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Notice again, it's past tense. So the shout is, 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 is almost rejoicing, right? The time has come. This, this city is ours. Verse 17, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, or Rahav, you may hear her name pronounced because it's, it's actual Hebrew in English. It's Rahab. Uh, the prostitute of all who are with her. And all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. 
Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. She has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So here the walls come tumbling down. Um, so uh, verses 14 to 17, they go around seven times, so everything's... The same as the six days, except now you're doing it seven times, and you shout, right? Um, so everything to a T that Joshua uh, was told by the Lord to do, he instructed them to do, and they obeyed it. However, I want you to notice something. Verse 17, part A, In the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now skip down to verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. Notice that in the narrative, you could skip the second half of verse 17, verse 18 and 19, and the narrative would continue quite smoothly. What the narrator does is, is interrupt the story, um, and part of that is for emphasis, right? Because you're building up, they're about to shout, they're about to shout, they're about to shout, cut to this other narrative. Uh, that is the one thing that drives me most crazy about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, right? Is they're at Helm's Deep. Just hang out at Helm's Deep. We're, 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 we're getting rid of uh, oxen and everything, right? Just, just show me the battle. I don't care about Frodo right now, right? I mean, I want to see you know, the, the action. Um, but it, it builds tension. So, so while, while you're over here, right, and the camera's telling you this story, you want to know what is happening over here where all the action is. And you get that interruption here. Um, and so what this is is a parenthetical note explaining who is to be spared, and what is to be destroyed. So notice that Rahab the harlot is to be spared. It's verse 17, the second half. And, and this, of course, goes back to her uh, hiding the spies. Now, Joshua loved to use spies. Remember that spies were sent into the land of promise, and they came back, and all but two said, there's giants in the land. Uh, we're scared to death. Let's go back to Egypt. So this was a, a typical thing to do. We do this now, right? You get all the information about your enemy before you go in. We do this in sports. Uh, I remember uh, um, when uh, Ricky P was uh, winning championships for the University of Louisville. Uh, he did the same thing every March Madness. And he did this when he was at UK. He, on a, a selection Sunday, he'd be interviewed by the news meeting. Remember what, every year he said the same thing. Of all my years of coaching, this is the hardest draw I think, I think I've ever had. Every year he said that. He could be playing teams like Robert Morris and St. Peter's, and he would still say that, right? That's a funny joke. And, and, and uh, what, you, what he'll do is, is after he does, uh, so he, he plays the first game, round of 64, right? And, and let's say he wins. Um, uh, not that Kentucky could do that now, but he wins, and, and he goes and he does all the stuff he has to do. He then watches the two teams, one of them he'll play, 
And he'll watch that, and then he'll talk about the second that game is over with, he knows who the opponent is. His assistants, or while that game's going on, his assistants are watching tape of both teams. And then once they know who, who they're going to play in the next round, all him and all his assistants will watch every game that team has played. Now, why, why do you do that? Is you, the more you know about your enemy, the, the, the better prepared you are. To, so this Joshua does this all the time. He'll do it later on in the story. Uh, but, but he says that there was someone who allowed us to sneak in and to spy out the land. Therefore, as we promised, we will spare her and her family. Uh, verse 18, everything else and everyone else is to be annihilated. This is the language of holy war. And this is to be seen as a type of sacrifice to God. Jericho will be the first city to fall to the Israelites. And as such, it is the first fruits. It is, it is to be given completely over to God. And also remember that the work of cleansing is important. A lot of people struggle with Joshua, right? This was a very bloody book. It, it is a hard book to read with New Testament lens. It is. But remember that, that the Canaanites... Um, were very, very wicked. And, and Israel is to cleanse the land to establish a new Garden of Eden. Uh, we get this in Deuteronomy 20. It says, The cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction. By the way, that language, devote them to destruction, go back and read uh, verses 15 to 25 we just read. You'll find that phrase over and over again. You, you, you can devote things uh, to the Lord, right, as for, for sacrifice or for sanctification or as a sac- whatever. We can devote them to destruction. And that language is borrowed from the Pentateuch, uh, that there are things that must be destroyed. And this will come up later. The, the high altars, high places, they, they need to be devoted to destruction. That's the, that's the language of complete annihilation. Uh, devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. A couple of things here. Uh, these are all the Canaanites, but we use the term Canaanite as a uh, generalization, right? Um, and and uh, we, we still do that today. We may speak of the Europeans, Right? Uh, but, but really, uh, the French are very different from the Germans, you know, and the English and all that. We use generic language. Um, also, this warning that uh, do this so that they may not teach you according to their abominable practices is exactly what happens to Israel generations later. You see that pattern in uh, Judges, right? Up and down, up and down. But particularly in, in, uh, after Solomon... Uh, you get bad kings who reintroduce uh, Baal and Ashtoreth worship. Elijah has to come and, and, and demonstrate that Yahweh is, uh, is, is, is the true God. Why? Because Israel had adopted the teachings and practices of the Canaanites and the Babylonians and the Philistines and everyone else. So, so this has to be a cleansing of the land, a pure, purifying work of, of the land. The third thing, uh, so they are to save... Rahab, destroy everyone and everything else except precious metals, which like silver, gold, and other metals, they are to be preserved to be donated to the tabernacle. So one of the ways that they are going to um, 
produce the work necessary for the tabernacle is through uh, conquest. Um, so, so those three, three things there, and that, that's in verse 19. Well, starting in verse 20, the story returns with the final destruction of Jericho's walls and its cities. In verses 20 to 21, the walls come tumbling down, and, and we'll come back to this, but it's significant that, that usually in an ancient siege warfare, walls fall in, right, which makes sense. So if, if the cops are going to break in here, and they've got you know, their little battery ram, that door is going to fly in naturally, right? And that's that's way it works. If you've got a battering ram, the, the damage is going to go inside. Here it is that the walls fall in such a way that they fall outwardly. Um, because it, the Israelites aren't doing anything. That's one of the big points of this story. Israelites don't do anything. They march and they yell. I mean, they're... They're basically a cross between a Pentecostal and a Baptist. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? You know, they march like Pentecostals and complain and holler and yell like, like Baptists, right? Um, and, and so God does everything else. And so, verses 22 to 25, the two spies um, go in and rescue Rahab. Um, and now there's some real irony here that, that is really rich. Rahab had rescued these two men from certain death. Now... These two men rescue Rahab from certain death. Um, and so you, you get Rahab as well as her extended family. And notice in verse 23, the language there is, they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. That language of outside the camp is significant in the Bible. It is, the, it is where unclean things go. For example, uh, lepers go outside the camp. The leper shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. However, this is the last time that phrase is found in the Bible until a single reference is made in the New Testaments. And it's a very important reference in the New Testaments. That, of course, is Hebrews. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So, so you bring the sacrifice into the temple, and then you take them outside the camp where they will be burned and discarded. So Jesus suffered outside the gate. You, you see what he's being connected with here. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's where Jesus went, where Rahab is placed. He became unclean for the unclean so that we may be cleansed. And by the way, Rahab is the ancestral mother of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? It's like God wrote the Bible. I mean, it's just right there in the text. We, we didn't force anything. It's just right there. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that. He mentions outside the camp twice. That language has not been used since this story about Rahab. Just so, so significant. Um, by the way, we should note she did not stay outside the camp. Go down to verse 25. Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive. I, I just love that. Right? We already know that. 
Why tell us that again? She's alive. We got that. She is saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent the spy. Notice, she has lived in Israel. She's no longer outside the camp. Now, there are some debates regarding the dating because it implies the story is being written with Rahab still alive. Um, and and that, that may actually be the case because we, we get this in 1 Corinthians 15 where, where Paul says, look, uh, uh, Jesus appeared after his resurrection to more than 500 people and you can still go talk to them. Some of them have fallen asleep. They died. But there's a, still a whole bunch still around, right? Um, but when it comes to dating the writing of Joshua, that is a conversation that will take us away from what it is that we want to talk about. Uh, what this could mean, if you take a later date for Joshua, again, it's a big debate even among conservative scholars. What this could mean is the descendants of Rahab. And we know that's true because one of her descendants was Jesus. So her descendants stay in Israel until the time of Jesus. And they weren't unclean anymore. Joshua saved her. Um, well, one of the things I've done a lot... Um, this past week is 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 uh, look at what it is that we know historically about uh, Josh uh, about by Jericho, and um, y- if you want to, you can get on the YouTube and you can watch plenty of of documentaries on it, uh, like I have. Some aren't worth ten cents. I'll make a joke here in a minute, so I need you to laugh in advance um, from one of those. So I, I think I have these up here. Uh, yeah, so what I want to do is actually share with you um, that of all the Old Testament events, uh, the destruction of Jericho may be one of the best attested in the archaeological and historical find, uh, which is significant. Um, you can go to a place, the ancient ruins of Jericho. Everyone agrees this, this, that these are the ancient ruins of Jericho, and you can find what I think is clear evidence that this is a historical event. Now, remember, this is unique in world religion. Um, Mormons know that the Nephites and the Lamanites did not exist. They may not say that publicly, but they know that. There's a little thing called DNA, so we know that the Native Americans aren't the lost tribes of Israel, and we know that there is no historical archaeological record in the Americas of the Nephites and the Lamanites, okay? They know that. That does not upend their religion. Because the religion is that the angel Moroni showed up to Joseph Smith, and now you have to avoid caffeine. That's essentially it, okay? Um, same thing with Islam. Uh, there are difficulties with the text of the Quran, And if they were to discover that Muhammad, according to tradition, did not ascend into the heavens where the dome of the rock now stands, their religion does not fall. If we prove that Moses never existed, the Mosaic law would still be in effect in Judaism. So on and so forth. But if we find a tomb with the bones of a carpenter named Jesus from Nazareth from the first century, the gig is up. So, and it's because we believe not just there is a divine being, but that this divine being has shown up in human history. And so, so we can, I believe, dig in the Middle East throughout the area, and we can find some really incredible finds that back up the Bible. Now, not all of them are easy to explain, but, but I think Jericho is one that I've been really blessed this week. So let me give you um, six, six things about Jericho that fascinate me, okay? I am moving. Stop. This watch wears me out. Um, 
I can run 13 miles. Okay, I've done this. I'll run 13 miles, and I will be soaking in the tub, sore as can be, and this watch will go, eh, move. I like, I've already got four deacons all over me. I don't need one more, right? What are we talking about? That was not in my notes. It, it, it wasn't. That was free. First of all, archaeologists have found two walls with houses between those walls, okay? Um, I, should have, I should have put a picture of this. I meant to. Uh, maybe I'd go back to my, my son's uh, depiction of it. So basically what you have is typically we think of like Helm's Deep is one giant wall that goes around the city, where if the city is built like on the side of a mountain, it'll just go around up to the mountain. That's pretty standard ancient ancient cities. Um, but this city is a little unique. There's two walls. So you have an outside wall, um, and then uh, so you have to go up to, 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 to this uh, rock layer. You have a wall that stands, I think it was like 12 feet. And then inside the city, even farther, was another high wall. And it's even higher up. And in between those two walls were, were, were just houses and other buildings all over the place. We, we have recreated what Jericho would have looked like in the times of Joshua. Okay? And now, why is that significant? Why is that significant? There's two walls. One, it describes how people are shut in and shut out outside, that it is fortified. Maybe you can get in one wall, but then you still have to get into the other. And so this is great for garrisons and other defensive means is, is, is if that first wall is breached, you have two sources where you can put military personnel to rain down fire and brimstone and arrows and slurpees, right? Uh, this, this is the advantage of it. Um, it is also significant that between the walls are houses. Now, can you think a part of the story where um, a house near the wall was necessary to where a signal could be sent out the window so that the army on the outside could know that's where the spies were housed. It makes sense that there, there is a line of houses right onto that outside wall. And, and in fact, we have found the entire wall is destroyed except for one small section with its housing left intact. And you could just walk up you could rescue Rahab and her family and walk right back down the rubble and they're fine. It's, just, it's fascinating that, that, that it's like that. Secondly, archaeologists have found that the wall tumbled down uh, maybe by an earthquake, right? That, that's, that's the natural explanation. And then the city is destroyed by fire. So the wall falls and then the city is, is lit on fire. Um, and it's complete destruction. You, you, what you can do is you can look at the way ancient cities work is cities are built on top of cities, right? I think the History Channel, back when it actually did history, had an entire show about underground cities that, that we still do this. We build on top of – we think that probably happened at our house. We have a, an empty space underneath our living room. There's no real way to get there. I mean there is, but you're, you and I aren't going to do it. It's, 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 it's not a basement. It's not a coal chute. We can't figure out what it is. And our, our best guess, Amanda's best guess, because she's an expert at this stuff, is the house was built on top of an old house. Uh, that's not unusual. Um, that You can go all around. The older a city is, the more of these layers you will find. And what you find is layers of Jericho, a burnt layer, and a few more layers. And so it's very clear that the cause of, of the walls... Why? Because the, the walls fell outwardly, not inwardly. So you can't say what happened was an army breached the walls, but rather, in a secular sense, an earthquake happened, and shouting really loud, okay, if you want to call that an earthquake, um, so the walls tumbled down on the outside, and then what follows is the burning of the city. 
That's the same order you get in, in, in the Bible. Uh, thirdly, uh, I've already mentioned this. Thirdly, one section of the wall was left undamaged. Fourthly, ancient pottery. This is fascinating. Ancient pottery uh, were full of grain. Now, if you, you can take the timeline of Joshua, and we know that they cross into Canaan around Passover. There's that bizarre scene from chapter 5 you had to read where Joshua circumcises everybody. Um, that's lovely. But, but, and, and all that is tied to Passover, right? You get a new generation. They're going to celebrate the Passover on the eve of, of, of the conquest of, of Canaan. The Passover happens in a time of harvest in the Middle East. And so um, um, you, 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 we would expect, because the harvest has been brought in, grain, the pottery is full of grain. And, and, uh, and that pottery dates to the time of Joshua. Okay, so why is that grain so important? You can go there and you can find just full. No, it's old and you know whatnot. You wouldn't want to be eating this grain. Um, I, I could probably think of a few teenage boys who would try. Um, but but it's full. Why? If you if you lay a siege on a city, and it is a long lasting siege, you would not expect to find food in abundance in that city. Think about it. We, we started the panic a week after COVID lockdowns because Kroger was empty and so was our refrigerator, right? I mean, you, you can date how long a siege uh, lasted by the amount of food left behind. They had all the food in the world. Siege lasted for seven days. And it happened in the spring, as the Bible said. I think, that, I think that's just fascinating. So, so you can date pottery with, with real certainty, and there is grain in there still to this day. And the city was abandoned, um, not rebuilt until centuries later. Of course, we know that story. Um, I'll, I think I've got the quote later on. Um, Hill of Bethel rebuilt it. And finally, I, I meant to put these one at a time, so you've already seen my joke. Uh, the shock wave that destroyed Jericho, the Jericho Wall, was ancient alien technology used by the Jews. Um, according to the History Channel, a little show they have called uh, Ancient Aliens, um, the Ark of the Covenant was alien technology that the Jews used as a shock wave uh, that destroyed the wall. I think that's awesome. I don't know why they didn't do it with the other cities, but they at least did it with Jericho, and that's pretty cool. You didn't know that, did you? Hey, it's science. Okay. Well, let's move on. Um, verses 26 and 27 is, is finally the, the curse. Um, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord, uh, be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up his gates. Notice the parallelism there. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So throughout the Old Testament, we get the contrast costly between blessing and curse. Uh, I will bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. For it's, it's the most prominent example. Here, God curses Jericho and blesses Joshua. And we, we, usually, we usually emphasize the cursing, but, but you, have to, you have to see both of them. One was a disobedient, wicked city. The other is the leader of an obedient people. Um, so the cursings of verse 26, of course. Um, curses were common throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. This is not a magical incantation, but it's given by God himself. God has laid a curse upon them. Much the same way he's laid a curse upon the ground by which we work, 
and so on and so forth. So now you have a curse upon um, upon a city. Now, this is fascinating. We, we've done a little bit of archaeology. So I love archaeology. I, I couldn't do it myself. But I do love finding that you can dig the ground and, and see and be reminded of God showing up in real history. Um, we found one of the most significant archaeological finds verified, still waiting on peer review, but it seems like very well verified within the last few weeks. Maybe you saw it in your news or on my Facebook, Twitter, I posted on there. It is about the size of a stamp. It is a little tablet that has the name of Yahweh in three letters. You could do Yahweh in two, three, or four letters. The, typically, we do it in four, but uh, in, in ancient Hebrew, we do it in three letters. It is the oldest reference to Yahweh we have ever found. It is significant for a lot of reasons, and I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to nerd out. But let me give you, give you the simple one. One is it shows that the Hebrews were literate during the time at least of the judges. Because that's when we're kind of dating this thing. Okay? Now, why is that significant? Many people claim there's no way not only could Moses not have written the Mosaic Law of the Pentateuch, but that Israel's couldn't read or, or understand a complicated legal system, which is bizarre to me because the Egyptians were more complicated. Okay? Have you tried to read hieroglyphics? No, you haven't. There's a reason for that, right? Um, and, 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 and so here we have not only an old, old, old reference to Yahweh, the divine name. So a unique, uh, no other religion has, has Yahweh. So this is uniquely uh, Jewish uh, in the time of Judges. Um, but it is a, a, a tablet of cursing. I'll, I'll put it up here. Here it is. Uh, it's big here, but it's, it's, it's really small. And it says, cursed, cursed, cursed. Cursed by the God Yahweh. Notice it's lacking a letter, um, uh, but it's, we know it's Yahweh. Um, and it's, it's, the, it's a style of Hebrew that I, even when I was at my best at Hebrew, which was not very good, I can never read. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. Notice Yahweh mentioned twice there. Now you think, well, that's just bizarre. Who cares? It's significant. One, it, it seems to be picking up a language from Deuteronomy, and I think it's Joshua 8. And some tie this to Joshua's altar. I think it's Joshua 8, maybe chapter 10. So Google uh, Yahweh tablet or something like that. Read all about it. Sean McDowell's uh, 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 YouTube podcast was excellent explaining why this matters. Um, but my point here is, me nerding out, but my point is, is that such curses were common. And it was a warning to later generations that this, 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 is, this has been wiped out. It's under the judgment of God. Do not build over it. Um, and of course, what does mankind do? He does exactly the opposite of what God tells him to do. So as we've already referenced, uh, 1 Kings 16, in the days of Heel of Bethel, uh, this is the son of, of uh, um, Ahab, uh, built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub. So there you go. There's that curse being fulfilled. Um, which he spoke by Joshua, who had no father, right? And, and so uh, it's, it's God warned you, because notice that Pharaoh lost his firstborn son, and here Ahiel will lose two sons. It's the doubling of, of the curse. Well, then we get the blessing, and we'll look at this quickly. Um, the Lord was with Joshua, 
Uh, this is the language of one who walks with the Lord. For example, uh, I didn't put them up here. Uh, Genesis 39.2, the Lord was with Joseph. And again, Genesis 39.23, that the Lord was with Joseph even when he was in prison. But the last time this is echoed um, is Esther. Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. His fame was, was out there. Um, okay, so real quickly... Who cares? Who cares? What does this have to do with Christ? Um, three things. I actually have a fourth. One is faith in the Lord's victory is a Christological importance. The using of the past tense to speak of the certainty of event yet to happen is the story of the Gospels. So when the angel visits Mary and Joseph, you will name him What? Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. It's the same pattern we get at the cross. Faith in the Lord's victory. Secondly, grace towards the unclean. We've already seen that with Rahab, haven't we? How many times did the text say, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute? Wants the reader to see that she is unclean. She goes outside the camp. She is a Gentile. Her whole family are outside the camp. But grace draws even them in. That's the good news of the gospel. So what did Jesus do? He went outside the camp. He touched the leper. He touched the uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He walked into the tomb to deliver Lazarus. That is the power of grace. Finally, the deliverance of Christ. This is a story of conquest. It is a story of deliverance. So it is we, we get it here. And again, it is not an accident that Joshua means the Lord saves. But what did Joshua come to do? He came to save their pe- his, his people by, through conquest and, and through deliverance. And what does Jesus come to do? The Lord saves, not through conquest, but through a cross. And all we have to do is faith. And, and, and if, if you want two points of application, it would be uh, throughout Joshua, emphasis on faith and faithfulness. So, uh, um, Joshua 3, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Faith. Will you have faith that this will happen? Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow for the Lord uh, will do do these things. Faith. Faith that the Lord will do these things. Faith that the Lord has done these things. He will deliver. He has delivered. And he does it through the conquest of crushing the serpent's head, defeating the sting of death, and cleansing us of all of our sin. And then the second application you can get in the book of Joshua and in this story is faithfulness. Throughout Joshua, you get um, God punishes unfaithfulness. Think of Achan, right? And how his sin affected his family and ended up being stoned. You'll see that tomorrow and Friday. Uh, And so that's why they lost at Ai. And then, of course, the Canaanite kings in Joshua 10 to 11, which won't be part of your reading, but you can, of course, always read through but God, in contrast to that, blesses faithfulness. Here he does it with the Jericho story, does it with Rahab. Later he'll do it with the Gibeonites. Um, so I think, I think we'll end there. I got more, but I, I think that's, that's sufficient. So that's the story of um, Joshua and the big wall, as 
VeggieTales, we'll put it. It is a fantastic story that, to my surprise, telling Lane this earlier, um, I always look to see how other pastors and scholars have treated the text, lecture, sermons, documentaries, whatnot. And I'm amazed how, how rarely is it ever preached on. I've never preached on this text. I don't have a lot of resources on, on this passage. Yet, we grow up here in the story. And uh, it's a tough story to get through because of questions of conquest and, um, and what some will call genocide. But um, seeing it through the lens of Christ, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Anything you guys have you want to add to it? Yeah, Lonnie. In the uh, reserves 100,000 years ago, about 50 years ago, actually, we were basically training. You've seen that too? Okay. Uh, and they were showing us what happened. When we get to a bridge, we had to uh, 